It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. Uh, remarkably enough, I'm Jason Chaffetz, and uh, that's why I have this Jason in the House podcast. Very grateful to Fox and doing it. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the news. We're going to highlight the stupid, as we always do, because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And then we're going to phone a friend. This time we're going to call Steve Hilton. He's the host of The Next Revolution super guy, never wears a tie. Got to ask him about that. I can't figure out what's going on there. Uh, he has this show on Fox. It's wildly popular, and uh, you know what? He's just he's just a great guy, uh, and uh, I look forward to having a, a conversation with him because his impact on what went on in England, you really got to hear about this, and uh, you, you'll be fascinated, I think, by his impact and what he was doing and why, consequently, he's a host on, on, on uh, Fox News. And, uh, you know, get to his thoughts on the passing of the queen as well, because I, I'm sure that that's close to his heart as well. I don't know. We'll, we'll hear it from him. And so let's get after it and talk about some of the things happening in the news. Well, it just came out that America's crushing debt is now on just going over the top of $31 trillion. Of course, this is a new all-time record. Um, and uh, COVID-related federal spending is starting to slow. Inflation is rampant, um, but $31 trillion. Let me, let me try to put this in perspective. If you spent a million dollars a day, every day, it would take you nearly 3,000 years to get to $1 trillion. Now that we're $31 trillion in debt, keep in mind that with rising interest rates, uh, guess what? We have to pay interest on that. And so we are spending more than a billion dollars a day just paying the interest payment on the national debt. Now think about that. For those of you that want more money for roads, bridges, infrastructure, maybe you want more money to just stay in your pocket so taxes can go down. This category of spending for the federal government is so high that it's on a trajectory to eclipse just the interest payments, how much we spend on our national defense. So how sustainable is that? It's not, folks. There has got to be a cohesive plan, and I blame both parties. This is not just, you know, Democrats, although I think they're worse at it than Republicans, but Republicans have not been good at this either. You know, since the 1972 Budget Act, only one time have they actually used what's called regular order to go through the process of of doing a budget and then going through the 12 appropriations bills and then having to go to the house and the Senate and then coming back over and doing reconciliation, that whole package start to finish. It's, it's lab- laborious. Like, right? And I say, did I pronounce that right? It takes a lot of labor to get through that a lot of time for members of Congress, but that's what they're supposed to be doing. Only one time since 1972, what's happening on the other years is that they just do the lazy thing. They do an omnibus or a continuing resolution. And then those are the monstrosities that show up before a member of Congress in our nation. And, the, you know, these 
two to three thousand page bills. We have less than 24 hours to review it because they really don't want you to review it. And then suddenly you're voting on it. Next thing you know, it's passed. And and let's also remember that more than 75 percent of the federal budget is mandatory programmatic spending. That's been the secret that the the trend has been. Let's just put this on autopilot, not have to vote on it every year. And uh, and that's wrong, too, because now it's just so unsustainable. It's just spiraling out of control. When will that day of reckoning come? I don't know. But I don't do know that we're going to need a balanced budget amendment. I personally believe a balanced budget amendment to ever get there. And I think this should pass Congress. And what it does is it would go to the states. And if two-thirds of the states would ratify it, then guess what? We would have a balanced budget amendment would force the issue. Anyway, that's my take on it. $31 trillion, folks. We're turning the corner, and we need to continue to highlight this because we need a real solution. And it's not going to happen in one year. It's not going to happen in two years. But we got to change the trajectory somehow, some way. I think it's one of the biggest existential th- threats to, to the United States and our prosperity. I really do. All right, let's turn to something a little bit more positive. And I got two quick things here before we get on to the conversation um, uh, with Steve Hilton. Uh, I really, you know, I love it when ordinary Americans do extraordinary things. And I read about this on foxnews.com. I tweeted about it. Uh, I think it's really an important story Um, because it just shows hard work and perseverance. And it just makes me feel good. I wish I knew more about this and heard the story in greater depth, but... Mike Huss is 55 years old, and he is the new principal at, and I apologize, because I don't know how to, how to pronounce this. It's spelled I-O-N-E. Ione? Ione? I don't know. Elementary school. It's a small city in California's Amador County, uh, which is, I'm told, and I read, 34 miles southeast of Sacramento. All right, so it's a small Small uh, uh, school. It's an elementary school. They go K through um, uh, sixth grade. Well, Mike Huss, for 14 years, worked as a janitor. 14 years. Uh, They had a picture of his beautiful family, love of his life. He got married. Anyway, he's got kids. Then he transitioned from being a janitor, and for 19 years, he worked as a teacher. Guess what? Now he's the principal of that school. And good for him, you know, uh, working hard, pouring your heart out. That's a kind of situation, I'm just guessing, where everybody around kind of understands, you know what, this person knows what they're doing. They care with a big heart, and they wanted him to be the leader. If he, if they, if he was, in my guess, a bad guy, uh, just, you know, not doing the right things, he wouldn't have ascended from janitor to going to be the principal. And uh, it just makes you feel good. I hope the kids and the the parents and the school district there and the the school itself all prosper under Mike's leadership and just thank him for his service and his dedication and commitment to education. Those are the kind of people we we need involved and engaged. And uh, uh, based on that article alone, I I hope we learn and celebrate people like this who do great things like that. All right, last one I want to highlight in the news before we move on to the stupid is uh, Shaquille O'Neal, the basketball player, the Shaq. Shaq is one of my favorite guys out there. I really like it. You know, for most professional athletes, you're going to like, yeah, all right, you arrogant little uh, whatever. 
I, I don't need to hear or see any more of you in my life. But there's a couple people out there that I really do like and admire. People who I think make the world a better place, do so with a smile. Um, and uh, I, I, I think a world of Charles Barkley, for instance, uh, I'd love to get him on this show. Uh, and the other one I'd love to at some point is Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, here's what she, here's what Shaq said. And I'll keep in mind, he's a Hall of Fame basketball star. Um, he was on Earn Your Leisure podcast. Never heard of it, but he was on the podcast. And he started talking about his kids. And I've heard him talk about his kids in the past, too. And there's the quote that I just absolutely love. They're kind of upset with me. Not really upset, but they don't understand. I tell them all the time, we ain't rich. I'm rich. I love that quote. I, I think that's right. He I've heard him talk about how he sets goals for them, like they have to go get their degree. And you know what? It would be so easy, right, to just let them glide, have be on a glide path where they they just, you know, live off Shaquille and, and just now I'm sure he's made life um, prosperous and fun and nice for them. But what he's also trying to do is say, you got to work. I'm not always going to be here all the time. And I'm not just going to hand you everything. Quote, I tell them all the time, we ain't rich. I'm rich. End quote. I just think that's the greatest thing. He's absolutely right. It's the goal of the dad, the mom, the parents to just be able to say, you know what? You've got to be able to learn to be self-sufficient. You've got to be able to provide for you and your family. That's the American way. It is a work program. You can't just you know, cuddle down in the basement and people have setbacks. They have hard times and there's no reason why parents and families can't be the backstop and, and, uh, help them out. But the goal is to get them back up on their feet. And when you've got able-bodied people who are able to do this, I think that's the right message coming from Shaq. I love that he said it. I've heard him say other similar things. So hats off to Shaquille O'Neal and his family and their kids because they'll all be better for it. They may not know it, but they're going to be better for it. All right, time to bring on the stupid because you know what? There's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. All right, this one, I'm going to the Wall Street Journal, and this is uh, uh, kind of close to home here. This is what I read on the Wall Street Journal. After a decade ruled by big brows... Some celebrities and trendsetters are shaving and bleaching their caterpillars. The effect is both avant-garde and alien-like. Quote, I look like an egg, end quote. So getting rid of the eyebrows to just go eyebrowless, um, I look like an egg. <laughs> That's just funny. Um, I have been blessed with some very thick hair and consequently some thick eyebrows. And for a long time, I didn't have eyebrows. I had an eyebrow and until I got a little bit later and my um, woman who I married, uh, Julie, kind of pointed out that, you know, there can be separation between your right brow and your left brow. That's probably a little bit better look. You might want to just pluck or shave that little part in between. I've been a better person ever since. I went from unibrow to eyebrows and the idea that people are shaving as thin or as little as they may have so that there's none. Oh my goodness. I think people look better with eyebrows. No matter what they are, like the size or whatever. Keep your eyebrows. I just think that's so funny. I think it's pretty stupid to go out and shave them because you can't really like just put them back on. I know maybe you can. Anyway, I just thought that was the funniest thing. 
that's my stupid for this week. All right, time to move on. Let's dial up Steve Hilton because you know what? Steve's a good guy. Really look forward to having this conversation with him. Lots to learn from him. So let's dial up Steve Hilton. Steve here. How you doing? Steve, hey, Jason Chaffetz, glad to catch you. Well, it's good to be with you. It's nice to be talking like this yes. and not in our usual, you know, like rushed two or three minutes on the TV or whatever we often do. Well, I've had a lot of fun. You know, we used to do more of that in person uh, there in the studio in Los Angeles. And exactly. uh, I kind of miss those interactions. But, uh, you know, I love the show and you've been very successful and uh, you're just a fascinating figure. You've had a You've had these um, amazing experiences in life and and uh, would love to hear more about that. So tell us a little bit more because I want to get to the part where our paths crossed it at Fox. But right. let's start with little Steve, the little kid oh. who's born. And let's go back then and tell us about early life. Funny enough, it's funny you should say little Steve because my stepbrother, who I grew up with, I grew up with, with three stepbrothers. He was also called Steve. And I oh, was yeah. a little bit older, so he was little Steve. So we all, you know, all my life, I heard that phrase, little Steve. It wasn't actually about me, but there you go. So I, uh, what, what was the question? Where, where, how do we get going? Yeah, so, so I, you were, I mean, you were, you weren't born in, in England, Utah. So where were you born? I was born in London, in in a in a in a in a part of North London called Barnet. I don't know if anyone's heard of Barnet. Um, it's just sort of where the suburbs of London start. So London was where I was born. But I was raised in a town called Brighton. That's that's really what I think of as home, this town called Brighton, which is on the south coast of England. So if people can imagine the map um, and you kind of roughly know where London is, it's basically directly south of London. Uh, keep going until you get to the – it's not the ocean, it's the sea, the English Channel. Um, that's where I was, I was raised. My parents um, are Hungarian. Um, my father's Hungarian. My mother's Hungarian. They met in England. They met actually at Heathrow Airport, which many people will be familiar with. Um, they were Hungarian. They were um, in different ways kind of refugees from the communist regime in Hungary. And they actually met because they were both working in the kind of, you know, restaurant, snack bar, whatever it was in Heathrow Airport uh, in London. That's where they met. And so they lived in London for a bit and then moved down to Brighton. And that's really, as I say, that's where I grew up. Um, and then my parents got divorced and my father went back to Hungary. And then my stepfather, who I really about, I think three or four, about four years old. Oh, so you were really small. My, yeah, very small, exactly. And so I don't really remember kind of living with them as a couple. I really remember my stepfather as my father, if you see what I mean. Oh, that makes sense. And we're, but he's also Hungarian. So the whole thing, the whole deal was in our house was Hungarian. Everybody spoke Hungarian, and that's really so. My roots are very much, even though I I grew up in England. And in fact, most of my family now still, I was a pretty small family. So my father was himself adopted and never really knew his parents. And so there's literally no family that I have on my father's side. And on my mother's side, you know, she has one brother. My grandparents have both died. You know, so there's not that much family. I've got a couple of cousins and so on. You know, so a small family, but they're all, all the family I have is in Hungary still today, other than my mother and stepfather. Yeah, my my family's pretty small too. My wife's side of the family, meanwhile, I'm telling you, they still keep coming out of the woodworks. They got so <laughs> many people in that family. I'm like, oh my goodness, another cousin. Uh, uh, it's yeah, amazing. It, 
yeah, but it it's kind of a, a good mix. Hey, I don't know what it is about Brighton, but last week we spoke with Ashley Webster. He also oh, was yeah, from he's Brighton. from there. No, exactly. That's exactly right. What's so up we, with so, Brighton and Fox News? Like I didn't. It's so I mean, weird, isn't it? When I uh, funny enough, we we made that connection like years ago when we first kind of chatted, and that's exactly right. And we were just talking about you know this this sort of swimming pool we used to hang out. You know, like absolutely, he was right there. <laughs> So when you were a little lad, I guess you'd say, from England, um, what were you into? I mean, were you like, were you a sports guy? Were you a nerd? No. What what, what were the older little Steve like? I really probably would say I was probably quite a nerd, actually, to to be completely (laughs) honest with you. Until I got to college, I think of myself as being very bookish and studious and you know definitely definitely not sporty um and you know definitely a bit of a nerd and then at college i kind of went the extreme opposite direction so i i became very you know social um i loved being i loved the kind of social life of being i was at university in oxford were um, you the class but, clown were you when you no, say social like, or you just got along with everybody going out, going, just yeah, just going out parties and you know, just having fun, you know that kind of thing, and not being at all studious. So that was the big change, I think, <laughs> when I went to college. Was it because you had a degree that, of freedom that you didn't have in the house before? Or? No, it wasn't that they weren't strict at all. I don't. I mean, that's not quite true. I mean, I actually, having said all that, I can't quite believe this now because I have two sons, um, and my my wife is is English. We met in England. Um, and then moved over here together 10 years ago, but we'll probably get to that. But um, my, uh, I have two sons and my eldest son is 14. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, aged 14, I went to, I went with a friend of mine around Europe on this thing called Interrail, which is this amazing thing. It was, I think it's still going. It's an amazing deal. It's like a really cheap, it's like a one month rail pass. And, and Europe, there are lots of railways. Going on the train is like a very sort of, that's how you get around a lot uh, within countries and between countries. And this was like unlimited rail travel for a month. And we did that. Like we literally went around Europe and had a blast. But, you know, age 14, like just the two of us. Like, now, I'm, you, wouldn't I'm, let your, you wouldn't let your no, son do that. No, in a million years. I just can't believe that I actually, that I, I was allowed to do that. Um, I mean, I remember it fondly. Nothing bad happened. It was great, you know, but... It's amazing, actually, to think back that that my parents that it was left. that age, right? Yeah, no, you know, no, no, but it was, it was yeah. a different era. Like I, I, I like telling the story about how when I was young, my my dad and mom would put me on a bus to go to you know another part of Arizona. I was in Arizona at the time. No right. problem. Didn't even think about it. Just told the bus driver, "Hey, make sure he gets off there." And yeah, and then he told stories about how he would, as a little kid, would just get on the train and get on a bus and just go places. But man, not 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 the world we live in today. No, exactly. So you know, I I mean, maybe I wasn't like a total nerd. I mean, I went to boarding school. Actually, that's yeah, I'm I'm sort of overstating the nerd thing. So I think like pre, <laughs> I got less and less nerdy. Maybe that's the right. It's like a it's like a sort of progress away from nerdiness. So like I was very nerdy to start with. And then I went to this amazing school, actually, like a truly incredible school. I mean, the word unique is overused, but it literally is unique. Um, it's a school called Christ's Hospital, and it's a boarding school in the countryside in England, still pretty close. It's in Sussex, actually. 
That's why every time I hear about the, you know, Meghan and Harry and the Duke and Duchess of Sussex is like that. It's kind of gets to me because I Sussex is like where I'm from, you know. So, um, right. They uh, anyway. So this t- it was in the this school was in the middle of the countryside in Sussex, boarding school, really amazing. Sort of, it was it was started. It's a classic sort of English, oh, you know, thing. It was started by King Edward the Sixth in 1553. Wow, in the city it's got of some London. History. Yeah, yeah. No, really, really historic. And it was in the city of London, like the old, if anyone's been to London, you know, right near where, in fact, the original building was right opposite where the Tower of London is. So the old wow. sort of ancient bit of London. And the name Christ's Hospital was because it literally was a hospital um, originally for the kind of poor and sick kids of London. And the king in the act of, you know, you know, munificence set up a hospital to look after the sick children. And then when they, and then it sort of over time, you know, they're being looked after as, you know, as, as in the hospital, they started teaching them and then it kind of became a school and it became the school that was very much connected to all the like um, old kind of guilds, you know, the craftsmen's guilds of London and all of that. So it's very intimately connected with the city of London. But then in the like early, early 20th century, like 1904, I think it was something like that. It, they, they sort of felt that it was too small and they wanted to get out of the kind of by that time London was very industrial and the smog and all that kind of stuff so they moved to this campus that they built amazing kind of red brick Victorian buildings in the middle of the countryside in Sussex and it became a boarding school and 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 in fact it remained a charity so it is incredible school really because it had all the trappings and educational benefits and everything else of a one of the famous you know what in England they call public schools like we here would call private schools the famous kind of boarding so, schools people may have, may have heard of eton and places like where prince william went stuff like that it was just like one of those except it was for poor kids and it and it, and it was means tested and you could only go there if your parents or your family income was below a certain level and so it's an amazing thing because right in the middle of the beautiful English countryside, you had this incredibly kind of swanky, fancy school with incredible facilities and education. But all the kids were like, you know, broken homes or poor backgrounds, like loads of black kids from inner London and all that kind of stuff. It was really amazing, actually. So, So it was a, that was a pretty transformative experience, I have to say. So when you look back on it, did you there's a perspective now and there's a perspective when you're living in it. Did, did you consider yourself well off or did you, uh, and, and how no. would you contrast that with now? No, I definitely, we were, we were kind of working. I mean, it's the, the labels are slightly different in the UK. I mean, it's kind of comfortable working class, something like that. I'd say my, my stepfather was a construction worker. He, he was, so my, so my you know, she, she had kind of, she was worked in a shoe store and in a kind of office, you know, so not at all fancy, but you know, we, ne- we were never like, you know, starving. It wasn't like poverty. Um, and my stepfather was, who was, as I mentioned, also Hungarian, like he had the most dramatic story because he actually, he grew up in a village in the countryside in the East and Western part of Hungary, uh, uh, in the Western part of Hungary. And he and his brother, and a couple of their school friends, they heard on the radio about when the Russians came in to crush the uprising, the revolution in 1956. And so they were like hearing about this. And, and he, he tells this, this amazing story. And they just hear this 
he, he, he emphasizes this phrase that they were all saying, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. And so they all just left. I think, funnily enough, I think he was actually 14, wow. yeah. 14 years old. And they literally ran away from the village to the border with Austria. And they literally, you know, climbed the barbed wire fences and through the minefields wow. and all that wow. kind of stuff. And everybody was killed other than he and his brother. So there was like wow. their class basically around, you know, and they were the only two that survived. And there's an even more amazing story, which is that then he uh, ended up in a refugee camp in Austria. And then many, many years later, I got to know Arnold Schwarzenegger. Maybe we'll get to how that happened. But anyway, and, and I, you know, know him quite well. I see him here in California every now and again. And we were just chatting one night. Um, I was at his place and he was and we we're just talking about that because, of course, he's Austrian. And he was saying, and he was describing where he grew up, and it was near the same refugee camp. And he said, and I, he was telling me, Arnold was telling me that his father used to take him when he was a kid, roughly that age, to volunteer at the refugee camp and serve oh, meals. Wow. Amazing. Oh. You know, so I, I don't know if they actually met, but it was definitely possible. Anyway, that the reason is... I mention all that is because he, my stepfather, you know, he, he, he wasn't, it was a rural thing. It wasn't, he wasn't very, very well educated. And so he got to England and then, you know, they were distributing refugees to all countries were taking Hungarian refugees and he ended up in England and he didn't really have any formal education. So he worked on in construction and then ended up, you know, by the time, you know, we were all together, he had a kind of small construction business. So, you know, we were kind of, I would think of, I would say we were kind of working people like, you know, not, not poor, but like just about getting by. Yeah. But night after night, you're not worried about whether there's going to be a, something to eat or shelter, but still not, not the but wealthiest it's definitely family. Kind of regular, regular working people. I think that's, that, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. and the thing that's amazing about the school Christ hospital is that that's what it was like, you know, so we all had this incredible opportunity, but like there was no rich people. <laughs> so it was really interesting. <laughs> so, uh, you get focused in school, uh, but then what happens? And what did you focus on? And then, and then, well, how was, did you, you make know, the pretty... leap away from the parents? Well, I went to university. I went to Oxford actually, and then so you yeah, were doing and pretty and well in school to go to Oxford. Yeah, I was good. I remember. I, I, I remember being <laughs> pretty good at writing. You know, they. You know, I had a good. I enjoyed writing. You know, words and writing. That was always a kind of strength. I was okay at math. You know, I, I definitely was more on the kind of. Um, art side or whatever and then and language actually my the subject like in england you choose three t subjects for what they call a levels so you're the exams you take i guess the equivalent of just before college you know the college college entrance. right 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 and i did french german and history so languages all that was pretty strong um but i was very young because i got promoted through i got promoted three grades um and so i was always in a class with kids that were two or three years older than me. Um, and therefore, by the time it got to kind of college entrance, I was like really young for college, you know. Um, and then I, and then also in those days you had an, you could do an exam, an ent a specific entrance exam for Oxford and Cambridge. They were the only two that you took earlier than these other exams. But if you did well in them and got accepted, then you didn't have to bother with those other <laughs> subjects. And basically you could have almost like a year not worrying about any academic stuff. So I, I did that. It's a bit of a risk because if you don't get in, then you're kind of screwed. But I did get in. But like <laughs> really did get young, in. Like, I was like 15 or something, like super young. 
And then um, I therefore took a gap year before going to university, and that was great because I started working and really loved that, actually. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Steve Hilton right after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Where did you get it, sort of this uh, passion, this, uh, how did you gravitate towards the world of politics? Because you were involved in the UK in that before you yeah. got involved here. Oh, very you know, much on so, Fox. Yeah. So explain how that transition happened. I've, I, it's interesting. I was always interested in it. Um, but why, why not from my parents? I don't know. Definitely. People say, Oh, is it cause you're Hungarian and you know, communism? Not really. I mean, I now feel that much more strongly now. And then I hear stories of how the communists treated my family and my, especially my grandmother, you know, so I get very fired up about it now. But that, it, if I'm honest, it wasn't that then. You know, I was really interested. I, I, I found it kind of fascinating when I remember Mrs. Thatcher winning the election. So I would have been 10 years old, 1979, when she won the election. So, you know, that's pretty young. I, I really remember it. And I remember and then even as a guy, I remember what, you know, staying up to watch the election results and things. I was just interested in it. I don't, I don't remember why. I think I just found it interesting, you know, like some people like yeah. sports, you know, it's almost just that kind of thing. They were, yeah, I they grew up, they did like engineering or they like, yeah. Yeah. So and what so was I your first break there? How did you, you, okay, it's one thing to have an interest. It's another thing to get a job doing it. So well, how it did. It was a really amazing break. I, and this I remember super clearly because basically going back to the kind of financial point, we, we were comfortable, we didn't have a lot of money. And so while I was at Oxford, in, the, in vacation time, you know, I, I wanted to earn a bit of money so I could go traveling or whatever with friends, with college friends. So right. I did these, so every, every kind of vacation from Oxford, I did, I did, you know, I worked to earn some money. And it was always these crappy jobs that you do, you know, like literally, you know, washing up in a restaurant or whatever. Um, McDonald's I did, I did for a while. My first, you know, all that stuff, you know. Yeah, I've been there, done that, yeah. All those kinds of jobs that everyone's from, you know. And then <laughs> there's one that was so bad, I just thought, I can't do this again. It was really bad. It was, um, there had been an unusual, it was an, an insurance company in Brighton. And there, the previous, uh, like, I don't know, like a few months before, there had been a really freak storm in the south of England, really unusually bad storm. So there was like tons of, insurance claims and and the office that i was in they couldn't cope with all the claims and so they were sending them remember this is the late 80 you know like this is before internet and whatever so they were physically made, sending them to their other offices around the country to be processed and literally my job for i don't know it's like three weeks or something was i would take a file like the paperwork out of a brown file and i'd take the papers out put them in a box and then i'd take a and I had to clip this little white piece of paper to the file, the empty file, and write E for Edinburgh or L for Leeds. Or, do you know what I mean? Like, it was just so <laughs> bad. And I was doing this all day. And actually, the other really bad one, American Express. That's right. Where I was looking, I was in this sort of, they had these things called micro, the microfiche lookup department. So when they were, when the people complained about the American, the American Express European headquarters were in Brighton. And so like, 
they you had to and it was again pre-internet and so it was all so kind of clunky and you had to uh people would complain well, if they had a complaint about their you know card or whatever their statement so you had to sort of look it up and there were these queries and there's this weird microfiche system where you had like a dial and you had to run the dial and it would scroll through just the numbers remember a credit card number and you'd be looking for a particular oh number. And I mean, imagine that, like scrolling <laughs> through, like a manual internet. Yeah. Man, it was so bad. <laughs> and also, they were 24 hours, so they had different shifts. So sometimes I was like 6 a.m. to 2 p.m., and sometimes 2 p.m. to 10 p.m., oh sometimes gosh. night shift. You know, it's just, and I so often found myself literally falling asleep. And then my hand had been on the dial. And I'd gone way past the number that I was looking for and I had to go back. Anyway, all these crappy jobs, I can't do it anymore. It's too much. Right. And so I had this weird experience when, but I remember it so clearly, uh, I was at home and in England, you p- political ca- parties, there's not really candidates, it's just the parties. Um, there are very few directly elected positions for individuals. So the parties are not allowed to buy TV ads that it's it's all done through a system called party political broadcasts where the political parties in proportion to their votes at the previous election are allowed certain slots on TV. So they're, and, and they used to be like 10 minutes and now they're kind of broken up into smaller chunks, but that's, they're called party political broadcasts. And I remember watching one and they usually put them on before the evening news or something. And I was watching one and I got to the, it was the conservatives and I remember it so clearly as if it was yesterday and it got to the end of this very posh old man called Peter Brook, who was then the chairman of the conservative party. And, and, and he was standing outside the office, the headquarters in London. I don't know why they thought this was a good idea. Anyway, they put, at the end of the thing, it said, if we want to help the conservative party, write to me, Peter Brook, at conservative central office, 32 Smith Square. I remember the, and like this incredibly red faced, pompous man. And I thought, yeah, okay, I will. That sounds much more interesting. Maybe they have a job for me in the summer holidays. And so I literally wrote a letter, just like he said on the TV. And I said, I'm, you know, me and I'm I'm, I'm an Oxford University student and I'm looking for some work in the summer holidays. Do you have an, you know, is there any work? And that's how it happened. And I got an interview and got a job as a kind of, I guess you call it an intern over the summer holidays. And that's really what started. So fast forward to where you ended up. I mean, you started well, that, at the bottom of the rung if you're an intern based on an ad. So well, then what happened was that at the end of that summer, they said, they obviously thought I did a good job. And they said, and it was the, it was the last holiday. It was the sort of last summer vacation before leaving Oxford. So I had one more year to do of university. And they said, well, look, if, when you grad, if you're interested, you know, would, would probably, if there's a job here, you know, you'll probably, you know, you've got a good chance of getting it if you're interested in working here and apply. And so that, so they basically suggested it and I, and I literally couldn't, you know, I had no other plans. And so I did, I applied, you know, for a permanent job. It wasn't a specific job. It was like a, you know, job in the, in the research department, which was basically the kind of part of the headquarters that does, you know, policy research and then, writes a lot of the kind of briefing for members of parliament and for ministers and whatever. You just, it's a really good job. And, um, I got a job there. Uh, and so basically I went straight from Oxford to start there in conservative party headquarters in the research department. I was the desk officer for trade and industry and energy. Um, and the, and it was an amazing, so this, this was 1990. It was the last year of Mrs. Thatcher. And 
it was incredible because in in that in that there's a sort of group of us who worked there as kids at that time, and they included David Cameron, um, and Edward Llewellyn, who went on people won't know but went on to be. David Cameron's chief of staff in 10 Downing Street, George Osborne, who then became Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rachel Whetstone, who, who's now my wife. You know, it was this amazing kind of, we all became wow, that friends. Group stayed we together, had an amazing time. No, no, we yeah. really did. It was amazing. That, you know, back, you know, what is it now, 30 or 30, 30 plus years ago. And then, you know, we all did different things. So I worked there for a couple of years. I did, um, I had a brilliant role in the 1992 general election, whereas the kind of go between between the party and the ad agency that was doing all the campaign. So I learned about all of that. And then I, in fact, I went to work for the ad, ad agency called Saatchi and Saatchi. And then there was a got a bust up with that company. Um, and the founders were kicked out by a kind of an aggressive kind of activist investor. And I went with the founders because I knew them and start, they started a new ad agency, which I then joined and went to live in Hong Kong for a year to start the office there. You know, so it's a really amazing thing. But the, the sort of short answer is like did, I did lots of other things, but then stayed in touch with all those people. And David Cameron is actually a really close friend. And then eventually he ended up being elected to parliament and then um, ran for the leadership of the party. And at that point, I uh, went and ran his campaign. Um, by that time, I was running my own business, but I took three months off to run his campaign, and then he won. Um, and then that was it. I sort of thought, well, I've, you know, we're here now, so I'd better do it. So I left my business, worked for him as senior advisor. Then he was elected prime minister, and then I went to 10 Downing Street, um, a senior advisor, and then we moved here. So that was 2010 you, when you he made, became prime You make minister. it sound all so simple. You know, you just well, run for parliament, and then you become the prime minister. You just do that. It takes three yeah, months. I, there's, a good, there's a few steps in there, but I don't know, you know, like you can sort of choose where you want to dive into the detail. But that's yeah, the no, no, no. outline <laughs> right. of the story. And then we no, moved I mean, here it, to America in 2012. So, so I was two years in 10 Downing Street, and then 2012 moved here to California. So, okay, well, that begs a couple different questions. One is, okay, so you got to tell me, since you teased it a little bit, uh, how you bumped into Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, it go, it was that was through the David Cameron thing, which was that when we were – so the, the system is parliamentary system in England. So you have um, – like imagine like there's no presidency – and it's really just the, the Congress, you know, where you were and you've got the right. kind of the leader, the leaders of the two factions or caucuses are the kind of prime minister is one. So if you if you have the majority like Pelosi has now, she would be prime minister and Kevin McCarthy would be leader of the opposition, which is a formal constitutional title. And you get money from taxpayers to fund you know, research is it's an official job. So David Cameron was leader of the opposition. And actually he got that job, you know, he like early on, the previous leader resigned after the general election. So, you know, he, 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 we were there together and, and, and running the opposition for nearly five years. So you're basically like, you've got five years to plan for the election where you might win. So you've got to fill that time. Um, you know, developing policies, but also like making yourself electable and, you know, the deal it's like, but it's five yeah, years. I mean, yeah. It's way longer than, than, than you, we're sort of used to here. And so part of that 
thing, part of that process, and I ran a lot of that process, the this, this sort of overall political strategy, the policy development, I worked with some, some other people on that, the communications, the branding, you know, because I'd worked in, I had, I had sort of experience over all the different aspects of political work, basically. So I was able to kind of, you know, really have quite a close grip of all of that. And one of the things that's really important, particularly David Cameron was quite young, um, and people, you know, they didn't really know him that well, was you try and sort of build him up in the public's mind as a potential prime minister that they could imagine sure. um, in 10 Downing Street. And so the normal way you do that, is, well, one, one of the ways you do that is to have meetings with foreign leaders. So they're on the sort of equivalent, you know, you kind of make a huge deal of it. And the number one kind of goal for that is the president of the United States, obviously the, the, the most sort of impressive yeah. uh, comparison you could have. And so there's a well-worn kind of um, path of l British leaders of the opposition trying to get meetings with the president and, and all of that. But the problem was this was quite soon after the Iraq war and George W. Bush was the president and in, he was unbelievably unpopular in England, you know, for wh whether you like him or not, it, to the English voters, he was like really toxic. And so that wasn't really a strong thing. You know what I mean? We did, it was like, okay, well, what are we going to do? And actually, because, <laughs> um, you know, in the end, you're self-interested. You want to, you, you want to win the election. And so at the time, there were two other political leaders in America who were really actually very well known in England and very much admired. And one was Bloomberg, who was mayor of New York. And at the time, everyone thought he was great in England. And the other was Arnold in California. So we reached out to both of them. We, in fact, I think we, it started by us inviting them to speak at our, our annual convention. And through that, we got uh, to know them both, both their teams. In fact, there's lots of friends I have today here, people I know from those days, but who worked for Bloomberg and for Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that's how, it all, and then, you know, when I moved here, of course, I reconnected with all those people that I remembered and, you know, that's how it all, you know, came together. So, yeah. And so then you've connected. He did me with the most amazing message. If any, I think it's, people can find it on, on, on the internet if people are listening. He did the most brilliant message when I became a citizen. So you did a very lovely message too, Jason, but I have to say Arnold's was, you know, very, very He's cool. Been through that, you know, it's uh, heartfelt yeah. and uh, and sincere, and he knows you, right? And uh, kind of relates to the whole Hungarian issue. And no, exactly. I, I always joke with him. He's the, he, with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you know, like yeah, yeah. He's the Austrian, <laughs> I'm the Hungarian. Um, I I need to ask you. We you know we recently uh, had the passing of the Queen, and yeah. uh, you know I've had great admiration from the Queen for the Queen far. I thought she was. A person of great uh, dignity and a pillar of steadiness, and um, I just had the greatest admiration for her and what she did and the impact she had on the world. But you're from there. You, you, this yeah. is a little closer to home for you. What? Tell me about the the impact that it had for you and and what it what it what it really means yeah. to you. It's really interesting to me how much I've been affected by it. Actually. Um, I might even, t you know, it's really str strong and the emotion and I don't quite understand it. I'm still trying to understand it because I'm not actually a monarchist. I've said this on, on air on our coverage of this. I said it on my show that, you know, I've actually at school, I argued. I remember I, my mom was like upset about it because 
she th- you know she remembers did she come from a communist regime and I, and it was written up in this in the school magazine whatever the monthly thing like Steve Hilton argued argued for the abolition of the monarchy and replacement of the royal family the republic you know so I've always had that view right. um, on kind of intellectual grounds um, and I've never been but I've always had uh, an incredible admiration and, and respect for the queen as most people do like regardless of their views that's why the whole question of abolition of the monarchy or whatever it just was never really you know every now and again someone does an opinion poll or whatever but and while the queen was there it was it's just not a chance because she she herself like some people have said oh people are elizabethists not monarchists right they just really love right, her right. and not the institution i'm definitely in that camp so and but I why think is that, that? what is it about it. Her? i don't know like i'll just t- i'll tell you something that is just really striking like what happened and, and, and there's a phrase that Boris Johnson used in his statement immediately, you know, that came out very soon after she died. And it was a very beautiful statement he wrote, actually. He's a great writer. And he talked and he had this phrase in there like uh, that we, we will have wave after wave of grief. That's truly what I've been feeling. I mean, you know, we're talking now a few days. I, I don't know when people will listen to this, but we're, we're talking a few days after. And still now today, you know, like you, I just see some uh, video of her coffin or something and I kind of well up and I don't know what it is because I think, I think partly it's just this sense of incredible, you know, certainty and constancy and like, it's like something really fundamental has been just been ripped away. Um, and then this kind of just this amazing appreciation of what she did you know just think about the sacrifice the self-sacrifice and the self i mean oh she's the queen and she has the palaces but yeah but she just worked incredibly hard at anything you read about her like she pretty much worked every single day of her life apart from christmas day and easter she'd read these documents every day be briefed on everything endless visits you know we see the kind of fancy ones on television because they're kind of you know they you know the, the jubilee pageantry or whatever or royal weddings but like her daily life for 70 years was like you know opening some you know ward of a hospital or this or that you know like just endless and you just think about how hard she worked and like even you know two days before she died she was doing her job you know she was you know inviting the new prime minister to form a government so i just think it's this like incredible appreciation of her commitment to the country it's very weird i really am emotional about it and and how, um... like i i just can't truly explain it you know, the way Ashley Webster described it, he said, I don't, he was struggling with it as well, but he said he kind of likened it into the flag, the the emotion and, and the feeling that we have to, yes, and reverence yes. that we have towards right. the American flag. She just sort of personified that for those that were yes. in the UK. And so I think that's a great comparison. I mean, I get tearful, teary, I think would be a better word, you know, um, now I'm so proud to be an American. You know, we've talked about this, and, I, right. and when I on July the fourth and the flag, I really do choke up when I, I just find it so moving. You know, we were at a July the fourth event, a rodeo. The other was it this year or the previous year, and I was just like in floods of tears. You know, I just found it so moving. Um, and I think for me that is, and you know, just I and a, a sort of feeling. Oh my God, I'm so fortunate to be here. How how incredible that I've got to be part of America. So, but the queen thing, I guess it's this, yes, I think that it's that kind of thing, but it's very, it's still striking to me, you know, days afterwards, I'm still feeling very much, I mean, it's probably going on as long as, the, I mean, that, you know, it's, 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 it's really interesting. And if you How? look at the people, sorry, go, go ahead, go ahead. 
No, I was just saying it's very interesting. I've been watching a bit of British TV as well, just to sort of get a sense of the, they, you know, they obviously, you know, I mean, there's a lot of coverage here in America, but they're like obviously wall to wall, all in. And there's a lot of, you know, the conversations with British people and the people who are out give, putting down flowers or whatever, or now filing past the, you know, the coffin and so on. And, um, it's so striking what they all, they all say something very similar. Like she was always there for us. She never let us down. She was, we just want to say thank you. It's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Explain to us, uh, you know, the interaction of the queen and the prime minister. I don't think I fully understand or appreciate how active the queen uh, was with the prime minister. But how, does, how active? You, yeah. How, how does that work? Well, the first thing is that they they see each other once a week. They have it's called the audience, an audience of Her Majesty. That's how they describe it. I think it used to be on Tuesdays at six p.m. Um, maybe that changed. I don't know. Um, and they're never supposed to talk about it, and and ever. And in fact, David Cameron, my former boss, he got in real trouble and had to apologize to her personally because he revealed he like when he was there. This is after I left, moved here, but. He um, called a referendum is the one before Brexit. They had a referendum on Scottish independence mm -hmm. and it was like a huge deal. Um, and he, you know, they, the, he wanted to keep the United Kingdom together and whatever. And he won the referendum um, it, and it was defeated, you know, not pr pretty, you know, it's comfortable margin, actually. So it's a good result if you, if you want to keep the union together. And as, as he's a very passionate pro union and um, he, he, on some interview or something, I don't, I don't know where it was. He, he kind of let slip his conversation with the queen because he, mm. he was the one that phoned her up to tell her the res the result. And, um, she had been really neutral because she has to be, you know, like even though she's the queen of this is about to, you know, if this goes through, it was literally break up her country that she's the head of state of, but you know, she's politically neutral. So she wasn't involved at all in the campaign. Couldn't say anything one way or the other. Everyone kind of suspected what she thought because, you know, it's like right, <laughs> your right. country, but she didn't say a word about it. And he phoned her up and he described how happy she was to hear the news and, and, and like her reaction. He said something, he had some slightly unfortunate phrase about how she was purring down the phone as she was oh, so gosh, happy about yes. the result. <laughs> anyway, he, so he did, but it was like the really bad thing was divulging her opinion because she never did that in 70 years. Um, and he had to apologize to her for that. And publicly. so they interact, but they, they interact. It, it's but she a very never, so private, very conversation. totally private, totally private. Interesting. As Theresa May said just now, in Parliament, she said, you know, it's literally the only meeting I ever had, which I knew would never leak. And they also, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, Dave, you know, we're very close. He never told me anything that went on. But I do know that, that it's it's not a formality like they, you know, it's a back and forth. And, 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 and it's and it's like I think there's definitely advice given. It's not just, oh, tell me what you've been up to. It's definitely advice as well as inf informing you know it's a two-way conversation so Very and they all say the same thing they all say it's really helpful because she's seen it all before you know she's seen everything and, and yeah. i think from church my guess but, yeah. is that a lot of the a lot of the helpful advice is actually about things like well two probably two cat two categories but most helpful dealing with foreign foreign countries and leaders because she's you know seen all that before but also you like domestic tricky political situations 
because mm-hmm. like after you've seen so many things come and go, you kind of have a sense for, yeah, it's not that big a deal, really, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know, yeah. I think it's just wait this time. one out. Yeah. 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 And I think that's right. But it's very, but formally, but also like it's, it's, it's in her name. The government is in her name. So when I was in 10 Downing street, like every document, you know, civil service document, whatever, like it's called Her Majesty's Government and the acronym, you know, like HMG is the acronym and HMG this, HMG that everywhere, you know, the every, every document has the Royal Crown crest on it. It's like she is, it's all Her Majesty's this and that, you know, she is the titular head of the government. It's all done in her name. It is fascinating. She, I keep saying, it really she, is the, fascinating. The, the monarch, now the king. All right, all right. I got, I got two more questions before we get to the rapid questions. So, okay. uh, do you ever wear a tie? Yes, I, I have done in the last few days just for the, for the, for the, um, coverage out of respect for the queen of black tie. Um, and I've worn a, you know, I wear a black, I look, if some, if it's a, if it's something that require, I'm not a kind of complete jerk about it. You know, if there's a place that <laughs> you kind of have it. to wear it, well, I mean, that doesn't really happen in America, but you know. Like, a, I don't know, let's say a club or whatever restaurant, then I'll put it on. I try and avoid it. I really don't like it. I find it really uncomfortable. I haven't for years worn hey, it. Hey, so we all do. Thing. You, and yeah, but, but you I've set a so standard a, early, just like, hey, no, I'm not wearing a tie I'm on not Fox. Doing, I know. Like, Good for you. I thought I could get away with it because. You did. You have. Yeah. And then, and now it's kind of the thing. And, if, and in fact, I got a great story when, um, it's an amazing story, actually. I can't quite believe. Like then, I, 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 about when was it? 2018. So two years in, I got to interview President Trump uh-huh. at the White House, and I thought the audience, you know, I've it's the president, you know, and I should show some respect. So I thought about it really carefully, and I never wear smart sh- dress shoes. I think you call them, and I never wear, you know, shirt and tie and thing. I thought I got to do something different. The T-shirt. I think the audience won't like it. You know, they'll they won't they'll think it's disrespectful. So but I can't wear a tie and it's the summer. It's only going to be really hot and I'll be really uncomfortable and it's just going to be terrible. <laughs> so the, well, well, I'll wear a really smart like collared shirt and that will be good. And it, and it was, it was fine. But the best bit of the story is like, so we set up in the white house in the Rose garden, one end of the Rose garden. Um, and we were all there waiting and it was a hot summer day, but it was under the shade all too bad. And we're literally one end of the Rose garden and the president comes out of the Oval Office, like like in a movie, you know, you just see him at the other yeah. end of the yeah. thing. It's quite a long way away, like the length of the Rose Garden and a bit more. And he comes out and he sees the setup and from that other side, you know, he just sees me and he says, oh my God, he's wearing a shirt with a collar. I can't <laughs> believe it. And, like, and he saw, like, he's got very good eyesight. Literally, he's just saw and they're like, oh my God, that's amazing. And he was like, couldn't <laughs> believe that. Because he obviously used to seeing me on the TV with the t-shirt. So I very rarely do have a tie, but for where it's warranted, that's how I'd put it. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. You need wearing one for the queen and respect for that. That makes a, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. You're listening to Jason in the house. We'll be back right after this. We're going to jump right into the, to the, uh, the rapid questions uh, to kind of get to know okay. you a little bit better. Okay, you oh, ready, geez. Steve? Okay, yep. First concert you attended? Oh, Boomtown Rats in Worthing, uh, Sussex, England. Do you remember the Boomtown Rats? Boomtown Rats, yeah. Look, I'm old enough to understand Boomtown Rats, yeah. 
Bob Geldof. That's good. That, that would he be was, fun. He was once he was once famous for that before he did Live Aid and all of that. Exactly. Yeah. No. No. He was uh, that Live Aid. That was that was amazing. Did you go to that? No, but I watched it all on TV at school. It's yeah, great. it was fascinating. Yeah. I was I was uh, yeah. I mean, watching MTV and those were the early MTV days that were pretty yeah. pretty pretty fun. Let me ask you: uh, Did you have a pet growing up? Yes, we had a dog called Lassie, who was an Alsatian. So what is it like the Lassie? No, the not TV like the one of the movies. No, it's an no. incredibly cliched name. You're right, but it was actually an Al- she was an Alsatian. Yeah. Oh, oh very good. Um, so if you and your wife you come home and say, "Guess what? I've got a special guest." If you could pick anybody in history, dead or alive, to come over, break bread, have an evening together, who would you want to have dinner with? So you know, this is like funny enough. Normally, I would struggle with this one, but I'm going to say someone. I probably think of better ones than this, but right now, I'm going to say uh, Gorbachev, who just died. Really? Um, and I was really fascinated by him, and I studied that period in uh, Oxford. You know, like two of my papers for finals were communist government in East and Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and the economics of communist countries. So I had a real, and I just wow. really know how incredible it is what he did. And this kind of an amazing sort of world changing thing. And I don't think he got the credit. I always wanted to interview him, actually, um, and thought maybe I could go to Mosby. He's increasingly ill. And I don't think people would be that interested anyway here. But um, I think he's really fascinating. And amazing. I'd just like to meet him, you know, probably not that much fun for dinner. I don't know. Maybe. He's, I mean, yeah, well, but, you know, I, look, he's so it's, a historic it's more like, world figure. Yes. Yes. So it's, I, I don't, I'm not sure. It's not on the grounds of, oh, he'd be such fun. But like. I really wish I'd met Gorbachev. I mean, I've been lucky enough to meet some amazing people like Nelson Mandela or whatever through my political work, but I never got to meet Gorbachev, and I really, I wish I had. Oh, that would be neat. Uh, unique talent that nobody knows about. Something that Steve Hilton <laughs> can do that nobody knows about. Well, it's not that. I mean, I'm. I like to. Th- I love cooking, and I and I'm. I think really? I'm a pretty good cook, and I love baking actually. Bread. Not do you watch the Great like, British Break Off? Do you watch that? No, it's crazy. I've never watched it. I literally have never watched it. It's amazing. It's a pretty good it. show, and especially we if love you like Master baking. Chef. I know yeah, it's crazy. I, we we really enjoy Master Chef, Gordon Ramsay. Uh, we watch it as a family. But I, lo- I mean, it's not that. You, it's not like specialist a thing. But it's, I'm. It's a real big part. Food and all of that is big part. I, you know, one of the, I, I own. I started a couple of restaurants in London. I'm really into oh, food really? and cooking and all of that. Yeah. Okay, so then that's a natural segue to the question I always ask about pineapple on pizza. Yes or no? No, no, no. Okay, good. We knew we were on the right track, Steve. I, I knew I liked you, but that's that's kind of a bellwether for me. Pine- right. You don't put wet fruit on a pizza. It's just not no, something you should do. So good, yeah. Also, I th- can I say another part to that? I find it's a real insult to Hawaii because I've got to really love Hawaii, right? <laughs> it's close to us here. Um, and so, like, from England, you'd never go to Hawaii. It's way too far. So I right. feel like – so we've now been made a kind of tradition that we go to Hawaii at Thanksgiving every year for the holiday. So I've really got to know Hawaii really well. We go to a different island, you know, and I absolutely love Hawaii. And I think it's just so insulting that they call it Hawaiian pizza with the pineapple. You know, I hate that. (laughs) Good point. Good point. Um, What's that other thing for Steve Hilton? Like what I mean by the other thing. So you want to get out, clear your head, stop thinking about all the things that the world brings your direction. Like I like doing wildlife photography. I get out, do that. I've suddenly gotten to a happy place and i don't even think about what's that other thing for steve Helton? well you know it's quite boring but it's 
just going on a hike. You know, I'm lucky enough to live here in California. We've got some really in the Bay Area. We've got lovely things around us. I find that's really easy. We go with, we've got two dogs now, so we take the dog. I mean, that's not really, that's like more run of the mill, isn't it? That like you're, you're no, talking about No, my wife's the same really, way. My wife's like, if she doesn't get her yeah. exercise in and she doesn't walk around the hills of, of Utah, she's like, I just don't feel good. I just don't, you know, it just clears her yeah. head. She sometimes goes with a friend or me or, you know, and, uh, but that's, that's her happy place. And it, it, it's, uh, it's yes. therapeutic no, I to really, her every that's day. That's really true. Yeah. 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 Um, favorite childhood toy. Oh, I was just thinking about this because I put it in my thing last night about the queen. So I'm, we're talking on Monday. I did my show last night. Um, my favorite stories were Padding, the Paddington, my favorite books as a little yeah, kid, Paddington the Paddington Bear, Bear stories. And so yeah. I loved that. That Paddington Bear thing with the queen really moved me, that video she did for the Jubilee. And I had this toy. Which they, I think it, the brand was called Plaster Casters. And it was like this kind of basic kind of make a mold, add a plaster thing and then paint it. And I was given a plaster caster of Paddington Bear. And I just really remember loving it so much. Like, And you make it, you mix the thing with water, and then you set it, and then you peel <laughs> off the thing and paint it and whatever. I loved I, – I really very fondly remember that. No, I mean, it's like a one-off things, thing. It's like an ongoing toy, but I really have a vivid memory of that. There are some things that just invoke memories, and, and yeah. I, I, I think that's, that's great. Um, last question, uh, best advice you ever got? Oh, my God. That's really important and good. They've, I've got have had really good. <laughs> what would it Let be? Me put it's so it hard. Way. You got a fourteen-year-old son, and you yeah. say, "Son, here's what I need you to know." And you have to you have to summarize. You can't can't wax on for a half hour. You got to kind of summarize. I really want you to remember this. What would that? Well, be? I I I say this to him. To the, I already do say this, and I and I'm, I think this was what I was thinking of, but I can't remember where I got it from. But the, I'm, I do it in two words, which is keep going. <laughs> like, just yeah. keep going. Yeah. Don't, just don't worry. Just just keep going. Don't give up. Don't worry. You know, just keep going. It's not, nothing's that bad. Just like, you've got to keep going. Persistence yeah. and hard work and just keep, that's, no, I we're think we're all going to have hiccups and yeah. hurdles and valleys and peaks and you just got to keep plowing on. No, I think yeah, that's Yeah, that's it. It's keep advice. going. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Steve Hilton, The Next Revolution, on Sunday nights uh, on Fox. It's been a pleasure, Sharon, and getting yeah, to know fun. you and a bit about your like, life. And Thank yeah, you so much know. for taking the time. I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. No, no, no. It's great, Jason. Love to be with you. Thank you. Steve Hilton. See, he's a fun guy with an interesting perspective. Can smile and laugh at himself and just a good guy. I just, I, I love interacting with him, so... I uh, love being on his show, and uh, what a treat. Uh, th can't thank Steve enough for joining us. Hey, I need you to rate this podcast. I need you to subscribe to it. I need you to like check the box and give it some good stars. Write a review. That would be nice. Could really use the help there. So please do that. And then also look through the list of podcasts we've done. Some really fascinating uh, people. Uh, we had Jared Kushner recently. Uh, Burgess Owens, I think, is one really worth listening to. Great inspirational story. Uh, Brian Mast. There's some really good. Tiffany Smiley, the candidate for Senate out in Washington. Some really good stuff. Hope you're able to listen to those. 
and stay with us. Uh, we'll be back next week with another exciting interview. I'm Jason Chapitz, and this has been Jason in the House. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.